to the work that he's been doing, and it's really neat to be able to see some of the missionaries that we support in person and just kind of get a firsthand account of what all is going on, and he does a great job over there and is a really good brother. So yeah, so it was a privilege to have him last week, and, and now this week what we're going to do is we're going to get back into the book of First Thessalonians. Uh, pop your hand up if you didn't get a study sheet and you would like one. Oh, we do have a handful if someone doesn't mind. Are they, are they right there? I think they might be right there. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, we, we hit this very key word in, in, the, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6. And it was this word, therefore. And, and, and after that word, therefore, what we find in this chapter is, is that God is saying something to us about the way that he wants us to live our lives. It, but, but he's saying, if we're going to live our lives the way that God wants us to live them, there, there are a few things that we need to know first. And, and those things are laid out for us in the first five verses of this same chapter prior to the word therefore. And, and so one of the things that we've seen that we need to know is, is, is that we need to know what God's going to do in the future. The, the end of chapter four, it, it taught us about the rapture in the beginning of chapter 5, the first four verses lay out for us the events following the rapture, which, is the, which as we've been talking about, is called the day of the Lord. And, and we've spent a good time covering that, a good bit of time covering that. So, so God says to us, this is how it's going to go down. This is what I'm going to do in the future. And if you know that and if you believe that, it will affect your life. And, and then in verse 5, God's teaching us that there's something else we need to know that that it's going to affect, that's also going to affect the way we live is, is that we need to know and we need to understand who we are. We need to understand who we are. He says as believers in Jesus Christ, we're children of the light now. We're, we're not children of the darkness. We're children of the day. We're, we're not children of the night. That's who we are. And God is teaching us. We need to know who we are and knowing who we are, that will affect the way we live our lives. And then as we've been seeing over the past couple weeks that I've preached, God shows us how those truths should affect our lives and what it is that those things are supposed to cause us to do. You see, we're in a spiritual nighttime because Jesus is the light of the world. And while he was here, he was the light of the world and it was daytime, but now he's gone. And now it's a spiritual nighttime, and because it's a spiritual nighttime, there are things that, that we're supposed to do. We've seen that we're supposed to, to watch and we're to be sober. We're not to fall asleep, but we're to watch. We're not to be drunk, but we're to be sober. It's nighttime, y'all, so it's easy to fall asleep out there. It's easy to get drunk out there. And We talked about what those words really mean. But, it, but if we're going to live out who we are, then we need to know what it is that we're supposed to do. And so as we begin this morning, I want us to see what else God is showing us that we're to do. And what he's showing us is, is that we need to put on our spiritual armor. We need to put on our spiritual armor. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in verse 8 is the verse that we're going to be studying this morning. And this is what it says. But let us who are of the day be sober. We've been talking about that. 
What's that look like? Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Because of who we are, we need to suit up. We need to get our armor on. But there are more reasons to get our armor on than than just that. Because I believe that one of the problems that we oftentimes have in Christianity and, and why we tend to, sl- to fall asleep out there and why we tend to, to get drunk out there in the nighttime is because we don't truly understand what it is that we're up against. We, 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 we put on spiritual armor because of what we're up against. And, and we're up, what we're up against is significant enough and substantial enough that the only way to have a shot at winning against it is to have armor on. Without armor on, we're going to have a real tendency to fall asleep out there and to get drunk out there in the nighttime. And, and what we have to understand is, is that the day we got saved... We entered a spiritual war zone. Most of us didn't realize it at the time, but that is what happened to us. And we tend, what we tend to forget is the reality of what Colossians 1.13 teaches us actually happened the day we got saved. It says that God, Colossians 1.13, it says that God delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Okay, so let's get a picture of this. God reached down into the kingdom of darkness, and he snatched us out of there and out from under the power of darkness, and he translated us, or he transferred us out of Satan's kingdom and into the kingdom of his dear son. But have you ever taken just a second to consider the effect that that had on Satan? Have you ever considered that? You see, Satan is God's adversary. In eternity past, Satan wanted to have the place that was only intended for God. He wanted to be like the Most High. Even all the way back in Genesis 3.15, we can go back. The Bible teaches us about the fact that there's going to be enmity between Satan and Jesus. There would be enmity between them. In other words, they would be enemies. And the verse says Satan would bruise Jesus' heel, but Jesus would bruise Satan's head. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 calls Satan the accuser of our brethren. Have you ever seen that? And it teaches us that Satan is accusing believers before God day and night, accusing them. Corey's been teaching through the book of Job on Wednesday nights, which if you're not caught up on that, I encourage you to get caught up. But, but do you know what was going on back in Job 1-7? In Job chapter 1 and verse 7, it, it says, and, 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 the, and the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down it. Oh, well, I wonder what Satan was, I wonder what Satan was doing. That's an interesting answer to that question. You think he was out walking around the earth for some exercise? You think he was getting his steps in? He had his little Fitbit watch on and he was seeing how many, how many calories he had burned that day? 
No, no, the accuser of our brethren was showing up after walking around the earth to talk some trash to God about how his people behave out there. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 talks about Satan walking around as well. He's walking in this verse too. And it teaches us that Satan walks around seeking whom he may devour. So he's walking around earth seeking whom he may devour. And as he's walking along, he's filing some things away that he's going to bring up to God to rub in his face about how his people act out there. And it's almost as if God beats Satan to the punch before he can do that. And in verse 8, he says, And the Lord said, Job chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? It's almost like God is saying, Yet, yeah, Satan, I, I know what you've been up to, and I, I even know why you're here. But before you start popping off at the mouth, I have something to say. Have you seen my guy, Job? There's nobody like this guy. Are you seeing that in the passage? Listen, God and Satan are enemies, man. And I say all of that to say bad blood doesn't begin to describe what's going on between God and Satan and it has never stopped. It's going on to this day. And so when I asked you a minute ago if you'd considered the effect that that had on Satan when God snatched us out of Satan's kingdom and brought us up into God's kingdom, I think it's safe to say that the effect it had on him was it flat out ticked him off beyond measure. <laughs> God and Satan are enemies, and when God snatched us out of Satan's family and put us in his family, there was nothing Satan could do about it. He just had to sit there and take it. But listen, when that happened, we entered a legitimate war zone because it isn't just that God and Satan are our enemies. We're Satan's enemies and adversaries now, too. Because just like I mentioned from 1 Peter 5, 8, Satan is stalking us and wants to devour us. And the reason that especially in the last of the last days that there are Christians that have fallen asleep and they've gotten drunk is I think they just really didn't grasp what they were up against. They've never fully understood the war zone that they're actually in. For a lot of us, we got saved, and man, we were ecstatic about that. Now we're going to heaven when we die, and we're not going to hell. And man, that certainly is a great perk of salvation, I will say. But in the meantime, we've been thrown into the middle of the conflict of the ages, and we're right in the middle of the conflict between the throne of God and the throne of Satan. And some of you are like, you know, I don't think I want any, any part of that. I'm sorry to break it to you, that's not how this thing works. It's like, you know, sometimes my kids will be playing a, a game, a board game, or a, we'll be, you know, shooting hoops, playing pig, and, and, and things aren't going the way one of them wants it to go. And they'll try to say, I don't want to play anymore. I know some of y'all do this when you're playing video games, too. I know, I, you fire that game up, that thing's not going how you want, you restart that thing, and if you're really mad, you just turn the whole thing off. I know, those games cheat. I know. 
But listen, that's not how this thing's work with the battle and the war that we're in. That's not how it works. We got thrown in the middle of it. Whether we like it or not, we don't have the option of quitting. We're in it. Can I just go to heaven when I die? Yeah, you can, but there's a battle to fight first. There's a physical battle coming called the Battle of Armageddon, but the spiritual battle that we're fighting right now is every bit as real. We've been put into a war zone. Have you ever just sat and thought about some of the names used to describe believers in Jesus Christ in the New Testament? Check out some of the terms God uses to describe us. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. God has called those that are believers in Jesus Christ, he's called us to be soldiers. We are soldiers of Jesus Christ. The beginning of verse 4 says, we're at war. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 25, Paul calls Epaphroditus his fellow soldier. In Philemon chapter 1 and verse 2, Archippus is called the same thing. He's called a, he's called a fellow soldier. And believers in Jesus Christ are, are so often referred to in the scriptures as, as soldiers because when Jesus, when, when Jesus and when God snatched us out of Satan's family and we became a part of God's family, we also became a part of God's army. And though we're brothers and sisters in Christ in here and though we're co-laborers, we're also fellow soldiers. And, and a soldier... Man, a good soldier anyway isn't going to allow himself to fall asleep in the middle of the battle. A good soldier isn't going to allow himself to get drunk in the middle of the battle. And we've been called to be soldiers in Jesus' army. And we put on spiritual armor because of what we're up against. In fact, when you, when you look at how this thing of spiritual armor is described in the Bible, you, you get to some insight into what the purpose of the armor is actually is here here are the names god uses ephesians 6 11 calls it the armor of god second corinthians 6 7 calls it the armor of righteousness romans 13 12 calls it the armor of light and the reason though god uses those terms is he's wanting to show us something he's wanting to get a message to us because as we've seen, when we got saved, we entered a battle against Satan, so we need the armor of God. We, when we got saved, we entered a battle against the forces of evil, and so we need the armor of righteousness. When we got saved, we entered a battle against the kingdom of darkness, so we need the armor of light. That's what we're up against. That's the battle we're in. That's why God uses those terms. Satan is coming for us, and so we better armor up. That's why it's so important that our armor's on. Ephesians 6.11 says that the reason that we put on the armor is to stand against the wiles or the attacks of the devil. The devil's coming with force. The devil is coming with deceit. A few verses later in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16 we see that 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 fiery darts or or arrows are actually being shot at us and so we better have our armor on 
We have armor that we need to put on to protect us in the midst of this battle. But, but we have to understand how bad Satan hates God and how bad Satan hates us. I, I want us to see an example of this in the life of Saul. You guys all remember King Saul. And, and in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul is anointed as the next king over Israel. The, this guy is sharp. He's a stud. He's tall. He's a leader, and he has all the potential in the world to lead the nation of Israel to follow the Lord. And with that being true and with that potential being what it was, you can just bet that God's adversary and our adversary, the devil, is going to be at work to keep him from leading God's people to follow the Lord. And, and, and there's this nation that comes up all the time in the Old Testament. It, it's referred to as the, as the Philist, they're referred to as the Philistines. And they're always coming against God's people nonstop. And, and when you're looking at the book of 1 Samuel, as you, as you read and you see that Saul is anointed king, and, and man, things are, things are going pretty good, not far along the way as things are going well, Satan gets a stronghold in Saul's life. And he makes compromises, and then things start to spiral out of control. That's how it always works. You start dabbling just a little bit, and then a little bit more, and you start dabbling in something else too, and the next thing you know, the floodgates are open, and you're getting carried away. That's how it works, and that's exactly what happened with Saul. Saul is the king of God's chosen people. And at one point, he's out there taking counsel from a witch. And she's calling up people from the dead, and she's doing all kinds of creepy stuff like that. And then pick up with me in 1 Samuel 31, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines. My goodness, what a disgrace with the power of God they had in their lives. And they fell down slain in Mount Gilboa, and Verse 2, and the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua and Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him. And he was sore wounded of the archers. So Saul gets hit by an arrow here, and that thing got, it got him good. Are you seeing that? He was, he was sore wounded by the archers. Now evidently... Saul didn't have all of his armor on. And then in verse 4, it says, Then Saul said unto his armor bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and he fell upon it. And you know, Saul's concern <clears throat> is a lot like people's today, actually. His concern was that he would be dishonored with seemingly no concern for the way that his sin had dishonored the Lord. This happens all the time in our, our day too. Christians get caught in sin and instead of making it right and owning their sin and disowning their sin, they become obsessed with saving face. Their focus continues to be all about them, the same thing that got them in that mess. And that's exactly what Saul's priority is. So, 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 that, so that he's not humiliated, the armor bearer needs to kill him. But he won't do it. So Saul falls on his own sword and he kills himself. And here's what the Philistines do once they find Saul. Verse 9. 
And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent it into the land of the Philistines round about to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. Verse 10, and they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. And listen, this public display shown to us here in this mockery being made of the leader of God's people by the forces of evil and the power of darkness is a great example of what Satan wants to do to you. Do you have eyes to see that and the ears to hear that this morning? Satan wants to find a hole in your armor. He's looking for it so he can injure, disgrace, dishonor, mock, and make a public display of you and God for the world to see. He wants to pin you on his wall, just like he did Saul and his armor, and hang you there like a trophy. Here's Saul, the king of God's people, and he's pinned up on the wall of the temple of the sex god. What a disgrace. And Satan wants to take you and me, and he wants to pin us up there too, and he wants to be able to go back to God and say, look at your children. You saved them. You put them in a church that teaches the truth. They know all the right things. They believe the right things. And I found a hole in their armor. And now I got them hanging on my wall. And for all intents and purposes, they have been rendered at the very least temporarily useless for the kingdom. Listen, that's what's going on in the spiritual realm that we can't see with our physical eyes. And if you haven't noticed yet, this thing is extremely personal. First Chronicles 10.10, it gives us more detail. It tells us that the Philistines even took Saul's head and they pinned it up in the temple of Dagon. God and Satan are very real enemies, y'all. This thing is personal. It, you know, when, when law enforcement is at the, at the scene of a murder and they're, they're trying to profile the killer, We've got a lot of people in this room that know this whole thing a lot better than me, so I'll try to not screw this up too bad. But when they're trying to, when they're trying to, to profile a killer, they, they look at how the victim was killed, and it can give them some insight <clears throat> into who they're looking for. And without getting graphic, there are different things that these sickos tend to do that makes it clear that this wasn't some random act of violence, but this was personal. And that's exactly what Satan did with Saul, and it's what he wants to do with us. <clears throat> it's personal, y'all. And here we are, walking around, oblivious to what's really going on in the spiritual world all around us. We see all the crazy things out there in the world. We see the creepy things. We see the hand of e the evil that's going on, and we see all those things, and somehow we disconnect ourselves from understanding those same evil forces that work there are the same ones that work on us too. And meanwhile, just like Saul was, was hit with an arrow where he didn't have armor, Satan has his bow drawn. And as we saw a few minutes ago in Ephesians 6, 16, he has fiery darts or arrows that he's trying to hit us with where we don't have armor. We don't read our Bibles, we don't pray, and we're wandering around clueless to the danger that we're in. we got to put our armor on. 
Because these attacks are coming, and, and they're actually coming in some very specific places. We need to put on our spiritual armor, letter B, because of where the attacks are focused. We need to put on our spiritual armor because of where the attacks are focused. There are specific places that we can count on the attacks coming. And you know how we can tell where Satan focuses his attacks? We can tell where his attacks are focused by understanding what our armor is intended to protect. Are you tracking with that? We, can, we understand where his attacks are focused by understanding what our armor is intended to protect. I've alluded to this more exhaustive list in Ephesians 6. And, and what Ephesians 6 teaches us is that the devil is coming for us, and so we're to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand. And, 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 and I know that this Ephesians 6 verses is on the screen, but I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles or take your device for me real quick and turn to Ephesians 6 as well for a minute because it's going to be easier for you to follow along with what I'm about to show you. Ephesians chapter 6 in verse 11. <clears throat> Here's what it says starting in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Again, this is where the more exhaustive list of the armor of God is. Verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So like we've been seeing, we, we need the armor to be able to stand against and to resist the attacks from the devil. And when we look at what the spiritual armor of God is intended to protect us from, it shows us exactly where Satan is wanting to attack us. So, for example, in verse 14, we, we, we see what we could call the belt of truth. We, we better have that belt buckled around our waist then we see the breastplate of righteousness, the, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the word of God. That's the armor of God. So, so if you want to know where Satan wants to attack you, and if, if you want to know what Satan wants to, to strip off of you, like we saw him do to Saul, then this is here's our list. We can see that according to Ephesians 6.14, Satan wants to strip us of truth to keep us ignorant. He wants to keep us in error because Satan knows that according to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 14, it's by the truth of the word of God abiding in us that we overcome the wicked one, which is Satan. So he wants to strip us of truth and he wants us to be in error. And from the end of verse 14, we can see Satan wants to strip us of our righteousness 
and lead us into sin. Because Satan knows that according to Romans 6.18, that we're now the servants of righteousness, not the servants of sin. So if we're servants of righteousness and we're stripped of our righteousness, we can't serve God like we've been called to. And then from verse 15, we can see that, that Satan wants to strip us of the gospel. He wants to strip us of the gospel. You see, there's nothing that Satan can do now about the fact that we've been snatched out of his kingdom through faith in the message of the gospel. But though he can't do that, he wants to wound us and he wants to attack us there so that it stops with us. And so that there's no one else that is snatched out of his kingdom and brought into God's kingdom as a result of our lives. He wants to strip us of that. Because Satan understands that according to Romans 1.16, that message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So he wants to strip us of sharing it. And from verse 16, that you should still have your thumb in, in your Bible or your device. From verse 16, we can see that Satan wants to strip us of our faith and fill us with unbelief and with fear. Because Satan knows that according to Hebrews 11.6, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He knows that according to Colossians 2.6, check this out, our spiritual walk as we walk in Christ and as we grow and mature in Christ, it's achieved the same way that we received Christ. How do we receive him? By faith. So Satan knows by stripping us of faith, our lives won't be pleasing to God and our walk won't be either. Because pleasing God and walking in Christ are both rooted in faith. In verse 17 of Ephesians 6, we have a reference to the helmet of salvation. So we can see that though Satan can't, he can't strip us of our salvation, he wants to strip us of our assurance of our salvation. And he wants to fill us with doubt. Can you imagine being used to reach people with the, with the gospel and to build somebody else up in the faith? If you're questioning whether or not you're even saved, how are you going to do that? Or you're questioning whether or not you have passed some sort of threshold in your life the day before that cost you your salvation unknowingly? Good, good luck with that. But if Satan can get us to doubt our salvation, then he'll have us so busy wallering around and all of that that we won't be able to do anything of eternal value. And then from the end of verse 17, we can see that Satan wants to strip us of the word of God and have us occupied with anything other than that. Because Satan knows that according to 2 Peter 1.3, the word of God it actually contains all things that pertain to life and godliness. Literally anything and everything about all of life and living a godly life and having eternal life is contained within the pages of the Bible. And Satan knows that according to John chapter 1 and verse 14, that Jesus Christ is the Word. Jesus is the incarnate Word. The Bible is the written Word. And everything that's true about the one, it's true about the other. And it's how we know God. It's how He speaks to us. And Satan knows that according to Psalm 119 and verse 11, hiding God's word in our heart is what keeps us from sin. 
Satan knows that according to Psalm 119.105, God's word is lighting our path so that we know what our next steps in life should be. And because Satan knows all that, he's fighting to keep us from being in God's word. He wants to strip us of that. He wants to keep us from being in God's word because we're distracted by work. We're distracted by relationships. He's fighting to keep us from being in God's word by being too busy. He's fighting to keep us from being in God's word because we're too entertained by everything else, like the TV and our phones. And he's fighting tooth and nail to keep us from God's word and to strip us of that. And so Satan strips us from the word of God by by fighting to keep us from it. But he also strips it from us by causing us to doubt it. And I mean and I mean causing us to doubt it as in not believing that the Bible that we hold in our hands is without error. Because if you believe, listen, if you believe that your Bible has any error, follow the logic, then by default you have to open up the door to consider what all other places in the Bible contain error then. And it causes us to doubt It has to. You open up that door, and what you find out is, is what you've really done is you've opened up Pandora's box. That's what what you've done. You've opened the door to many complicated problems that are unnecessary because you're fighting the clear teaching of the Bible about itself. You're fighting Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. Every word of God is pure. You're fighting 2 Peter 1.19, which in the context of the verse is saying that the word of God that we hold in our hand is more sure than the audible voice of God. You're fighting Psalm 12.7, which when referring to the word of God says that God will preserve his words from this generation forever. And there are a lot of people and there are a lot of pastors that will admit that they don't believe that God preserved an inerrant copy of the word of God for us. Some will admit that openly. But you see, most are a little bit more subtle about it. I, I recently saw a, a video of one of the most prominent and well-respected pastors in the country, a, in, at least in fundamental evangelical circles. A, a guy who, by the way, has some really good stuff that I'm sure many in this room have gleaned from. But here's what he said, okay? He, he, when, 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 when talking about the inerrancy of Scripture, here's what he said. He begins with something similar to what I just said. Here's what he said. To a person that says he's a Christian but denies the inerrancy of Scripture, I would say several things. You're denying God's own claim for the Bible. And he goes on to quote some of the verses I just mentioned in addition to others. And then he says, but you're also denying every time in Scripture it says, thus saith the Lord... And then you're denying the overall superintending power of God over his revelation. And what that does is essentially is say this. You just made yourself the authority over the Bible. So you're going to have to be the one we have to trust to tell us what's true and what's not true in the Bible. And once you've broken the link in the chain, how do we know that anything is true? 
So when the Bible claims inspiration for all of it, then where do you go? How do you trust any of it? You literally unravel the scripture if you deny its inerrancy. And I hear him say that, and I'm like, rock on, bro. You the man. Somebody actually gets it. These are all our talking points. But then you go and listen to his sermons. And he's constantly correcting the Bible and telling us that a better translation of this word would be this instead of that. And I'm going, wait, wait, just a second. How do these things coexist, right? And then you go to this, then you go to this church's doctrinal statement online, and it says that they believe the word of God is verbally inspired in every word absolutely inerrant in the original documents infallible and god breathed so wait so wait just a second again i know we're the crazy ones and so we need to go slow because our minds can't keep up seemingly with everybody else's. but 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 I'm, I'm just asking you the original documents or the original manuscripts that that's where it's inerrant so the whole tangent about the inerrancy of scripture the whole tangent about the word of God and breaking the link in the chain which casts doubt on the rest of the Bible. After that tangent, you mean to tell me you weren't actually talking about the book that we're holding in our hands. Not only that, you're telling me that it only exists in the originals, so that means we've never had it in our hands. <laughs> we don't have it, we've never had it, and we never will have it, is what you said. And so the question has to be asked, what good is inspiration without preservation? So it was inspired originally, but it was never in one place at one time and never will be. I'm sorry, I'm going to keep pushing back on our detractors on that one. I'm sorry, I can't buy it. I can't go with that. That's logically and biblically inconsistent with what the Bible says and what you even say from your own mouth. And listen, I love many of those guys very much, but they cannot explain how they can say that on one hand, but when push comes to shove and they're honest, they don't even believe that a copy of this inerrant word that they speak of exists or ever has existed. And according to what the Bible says about itself, it has to be somewhere. We believe it's in English in the King James Version of the Bible. That's what we believe. And, and that when the King James Bible was being translated into English, God was doing something supernatural, knowing English would become the universal language, knowing the United States would be the place where the gospel was spread in an incredible way beyond what anybody else did for many centuries. And I bring that to your attention because Satan is attacking and he's trying to strip the word of God from you. And you can see by the examples that I just gave, he's doing a masterful job of it. Even the people that claim inerrancy and think they believe in inerrancy don't really even believe in inerrancy. <laughs> and he strips that out of people's hands because they don't think they can really trust it. And what happens is, is that when people are in a church like this teaching these truths, the first thing they drop when they move out of state for another job, they drop the book like a bad habit because that ain't cool anymore. That's, what, that's, exactly, that's exactly what happens. But I'm going to keep pushing back on the fact 
that there is no rational or logical answer that they can give how you can blow and go on one hand about inerrancy of Scripture, but then when push comes to shove, we don't have it, never had it, never will have it. So what was all this about? We believe we have it. And I believe that that changes things when we come to read the word, when we actually believe we have every word inerrant preserved in scripture that has an effectual work. It actually effectually works in our lives. And so, so what we've gone over, the, these are all the areas that Satan wants to attack. The, the, these areas that the armor is protecting. But God is saying, I've provided you access to the armor that you need so you can stand against the attacks of the devil. But, but there's something very important that we need to understand about this armor. We don't have the armor so that we don't get shot at. We, we don't have the armor so that we don't get shot at and hit. That's not why we have it. God tells us to put on the armor so that when we do get hit, we don't get taken out and we don't get rendered unconscious. Because we are going to get hit out there. We put on the armor not to keep from getting hit, but to keep from getting debilitated. And if you leave yourself exposed in your, in your, in your missing armor, you're going to get taken out, man. You're going to get taken out. Now, now, let's think for a second. Where are the two primary places that if you get hit, it's going to take you down for the count? Where are the two places that it won't just wound you, but it's just going to take you out completely? We go back to our verse for study this morning, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see, Ephesians 6 gave us the more exhaustive list. But here are the two places that if the devil can hit us here, well, it's a hit we're probably not coming back from. So that's why God sums up the armor here, mentioning just these two pieces of armor and says you better have that breastplate to protect your heart because if you get hit there, it's over. And you better have a helmet to protect your head. It makes sense, right? Those are the two worst places to get hit. When you're walking down the street, you know, and you get hit in the head or the heart with an arrow, it'll just ruin your whole day. I mean, the arm or the leg, I mean, that's all good. But the head or the heart, man, that, that yeah, that's no fun. But listen, it, many of you that have been here will remember this whole series began by talking about how the book of 1 Thessalonians is in our Bible to prepare us for the coming of the Lord. That's a continual theme right through this whole passage. And what I believe that God may be trying to show us is by only mentioning the, these two pieces of armor in this passage is the later in the night that it gets and the less time that Satan has, the more his strategy becomes go big or go home. In other words, just like when it's late in a football game and that team that's losing begins throwing those Hail Marys down the field, praying for a miracle, and, and they have to start taking these big shots downfield the later in the game it gets for Satan, he begins taking big shots as well, and he's aiming for our heads and he's aiming for our hearts. So when it's late in the night and the, the wiles of the devil or the, the attacks of the devil come, he's got less time to mess around. 
He got less time to mess around trying to hit us in these places that are just going to wound us but not completely debilitate us. He's going for broke now, and the later it gets, the more he, ed, the more he aims for our heads and our hearts because he doesn't have any more time to waste. It's too late. And so what we have to do is we've got to make sure we have on our breastplate, and we've got to make sure we have on our helmet because if either of those two are exposed, please know Satan is locked and loaded. He's stalking you, and he's just waiting. Because we, we, we tend to think, well, it won't happen to us. I'm going to be the one to, to skate through and to get by. And, and we think that until it's too late. Don't think it won't be you. You better get your breastplate on. The breastplate, it's described as the breastplate of faith and the breastplate of love. And you're making sure that every day as you put on that breastplate of faith, you're making sure that you're walking by faith and not by sight. And every day you're walking in love towards God and towards people. You lose sight of those two things and you're a sitting duck for an attack. Maybe there have been some tough circumstances in your life. And in the midst of that, you started to lose faith. If that's you... As much as I sympathize with whatever circumstances you've gone through that have caused that, if that's you, you're a sitting duck. It's time to really dig into your relationship with the Lord and really hold on to the promises of His Word as you navigate whatever it is that you're going through. And, and this breastplate is the, is the breastplate of faith and love. We've got to be in pursuit of a love relationship with our Heavenly Father and, and with the people in our lives. That that's what's going to protect our hearts. And you're like, okay, well, I, love, I do love God. He's easy to love, but that's second half. Those doggone people, that's, that's kind of, that's the, that's the problem. It's the people I don't care for so much. If that's you, though, I had to tell you something. That's impossible what you're claiming you're capable of is biblically impossible. You can't love God and not love people. They go hand in hand. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, it says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him that he, he who loveth God, love his brother also. If we say we love God and we hate our brother, we're lying. We don't really love God. Loving God and loving people goes hand in hand. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, check this out. We're, we're in the exact same context that we're in in 1 Thessalonians 5, according to verse 7. Look at it. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. That's what we've been studying. It's late in the night. The end of all things is at hand. So don't get drunk and go to sleep, but be sober and watch. And look at what it says next in verse 8. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. You see, love is a part of the breastplate that protects our hearts because that love or that charity it covers a multitude of sins 
You know how Satan can be at work and he can just use somebody to just hit you right in the heart? Any of you ever been wounded in the heart by somebody? Or heard about something like that on TV? Maybe by an acquaintance, maybe by a, by a friend, maybe by a family member, maybe your spouse, maybe someone in this church. You know what protects us so that we're not a sitting duck for the enemy? It's that charity or it's that love that covers a multitude of sins. You, you can overcome a lot when you've got true love in your heart for your brothers and sisters and your armor's on. But it's important to understand, though, that just like in the physical world, even with your armor on, if you get hit, it does still sting a little bit, even with the armor on, you know. <laughs> and we may even be a little bruised, and we may even be a little bit sore, but it's not going to sideline us, and it's not going to completely debilitate us. It's not going to stop us from doing what we know God has called us to do and serving where God has called us to serve and investing in people the way God has called us to. But for others, you've already been hit with an arrow and you didn't have your armor on. And that, ar that arrow went straight through the heart and that thing is still sitting there right now. And you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to grit your teeth hold on to that arrow, count to three, and yank that bad boy out of there. That's what you're going to have to do, and then you're going to have to come together with whoever you're doing battle with and lock shields and get back to the real battle. If your breastplate's been off, let's get that thing back on and walk by faith and love God and love his people. The other thing God mentions in this verse is this this helmet of the hope of salvation. The, it, it's so important that we protect our heads and that we protect our minds because Satan is aiming to sideline and debilitate us by hitting us there. We, we've recently talked about uh, how Titus chapter 2 and verse 6, it teaches us to be sober-minded. And man, it's going to take being sober-minded to not lose focus out there on the battlefield and, and to forget what this thing is all about. We, 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 we don't get drugged down with the affairs of this life if our minds are focused on the hope of salvation. And understand, y'all, that, that doesn't mean that we walk around hoping we really got saved that day. You see, our, our, our salvation, it's, it's not completed yet until we receive our glorified bodies and our faith becomes sight. There's still something we're hoping for in the future. That's why it's called that. But our hope is in something that's sure. Paul said to Titus in Titus 1, 2, in hope, uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. The hope of salvation, or the, the hope of eternal life is promised to those that believe by a God that is incapable of lying. That hope is sure, and we better be sure to have on the helmet of the hope of, of salvation so that our focus in this life is on the eternal. So our focus is on that day when we're going to see Jesus face to face, and, and all those shots we took to the head through the years are all going to be worth it. And Satan doesn't want us to be focused on that. 
He wants us distracted from that. If he can get our minds and our focus tangled up in the temporary cares of this world and the pleasures this world has to offer, even the good ones that are, that are not sinful, then he's got us right where he wants us. And when you get hit in the head and you get your bell rung, you know what it looks like? It looks like you're drunk. As you're wobbling around, you got hit in the head and you're drunk because your mind's not right. Your focus isn't on what it needs to be, on the hope of our salvation, the day that we see Jesus Christ face to face. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to hit us there. He's going for the gusto, y'all. He's aiming for the head. He's aiming for the heart. And he's not playing around anymore. If we don't have our armor on, he's going to eventually get a clean shot. And he's going to hit us. And he's going to wipe us out. And you're going to come back in here looking for restoration to dig out of the hole. Do you have your armor on this morning? God showed us his big three again faith love and hope you have your you have your heart protected with the breastplate of of faith and love as you walk around do you you have your head protected with the the helmet of the hope of salvation this morning it's a war zone out there father would you would you be with us as we as we navigate life and we're we want to follow your lead, God. We want to be protected. We want to be aware of what it is that is going on out there and exactly how real this battle is, God. I, I fear that we sometimes, because we, because we can't see it with our physical eyes, I fear, God, that, that, that it gets lost in the mix and, 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 and we forget about just how bad Satan is trying to get at you through getting to us. And I pray, God, that this group of people that has access to the truth of your word, I pray that that wouldn't be the case for this group of people. I pray, God, that we would armor up and so that we can, so that we can face the battle head on, just like you've called us to do. And we love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.